In your Bible to 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. We'll be going through verse 17 this morning. Would you stand with me and let's pray together? Let's stand together and pray and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we're asking this morning that you would pour out your grace upon us in a fresh way, that we would understand your goodness, that we would reflect at your work in Paul's life, but not only in his life, but in our lives as well. And as a church family, God, may we be rooted and grounded in your love, rooted and grounded in your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Would you pour out your spirit in Jesus' name? Amen. You can have a seat. Legacy is to share, to pass on, but also to receive. And what happens when impact is eternal. So Paul and Timothy, their relationship that they have with one another, that's really the context. It's the soil of this book. As we've been studying so far in 1 Timothy, this is our third study in this series. We've seen the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Then last week we looked at a commitment to sound doctrine. There was this list that was given to us of lawlessness, how the lawlessness brings us to Christ and brings us to the glorious gospel and hopefully all in a good way felt broken by the law. The law breaks us all and brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul then now shares his personal testimony of grace. As he's writing about the glorious gospel in verse 11, he now lets us know how the gospel touched and changed his life. This is really the celebration of grace. A great way to end the year, the last Sunday of the year, is looking at God's grace in Paul's life, but also God's grace in our lives as well. And I hope this morning that we come back to that fresh awareness of God's grace. So let's look in verse 12 of chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul spent some time thanking Jesus Christ. And we know the importance of thanksgiving in our lives, even as Lawrence exhorted us to be reminded that God is good, to speak it, to say it, to sing it, to share it with others. Paul is remembering this in his own life, but he's sharing it with Timothy, who will share it with the church of Ephesus. And take some time to be thankful this morning. Share it with someone else. And the first thing that Paul is thankful for is that God has enabled him. And if you're taking notes, maybe write that down. Enabled. I'm enabled. I'm empowered. This word means strengthened by God. When we look at Paul's life, we see a man that doesn't live an ordinary life. There's not anything ordinary about the Apostle Paul. It's a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit. His life is an example of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Sometimes we try to do God's work in our own strength, don't we? It's futile. We've got great motivation. We've been touched. We've been inspired, moved. We say, I'm going to be in this direction. I'm going to be a better dad this year, a better husband, a better witness, a better worshiper. And it doesn't last too long. This time of year, some are setting New Year's resolutions. They may make it to January 21st if you're lucky, right? The gym is going to be packed here for about two weeks, and then it'll go back to the way it is always before. And New Year's resolutions, there's nothing wrong with it, and it's a good time to evaluate change in our lives, but ultimately it takes more. It takes more in our lives. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit. 
On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And right now we're in John 14, going through 17. And Jesus in that section speaks a lot about the Holy Spirit. As he's leaving the disciples, he says, the Spirit is going to come to you. The comforter, the helper, that's how the Spirit of God is described in our lives, as the helper. I don't know why, but it seems that the Holy Spirit is almost the forgotten God. We don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We get a little nervous whenever we think about the Holy Spirit. But my question to us this morning is, why would we not want the Spirit of God? We know the Spirit is God. The Spirit is sent from the Father. The Father's good. And if the Father's giving the Spirit to us, why wouldn't we embrace the Spirit of God? This word helper, it means parakletus in the Greek. It's one who comes alongside to help. So the Spirit's coming alongside every believer saying, I want to help you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I want to empower you for this Christian life. Jesus told the disciples, the Spirit has been with you, but shall be in you. The new covenant, Christ's death and resurrection, the Spirit of God now lives inside of us as believers to transform, to change, to give us a new heart. The goal for the year would be to follow the leading of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be in step with the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but I definitely hit walls in my relationship with the Lord. It can only go so far. I do try and I fail and I try and I fail and I try and I fail and I realize I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need the strength of the Spirit to be a better dad, to be a better worshiper, to be a better husband. And inside of the Spirit of God, isn't there great hope? And that's the first thing that Paul says is he looks at his life and he says, I've been enabled, I've been empowered, I've been strengthened by God. The next thing that he's thankful for is he's trusted because he counted me faithful. He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. God looked at Paul's life and he found a faithful man that he could entrust ministry to. Faithfulness is hard to come by, but it's something that grabs the attention of God. In Psalms 100 verse 6, God says, My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. God's looking this morning as this year ends, and he's looking for the faithful. His attention is upon the faithful. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. Isn't that true? Each man will proclaim his own goodness, most likely on Facebook and Twitter and social media. That's where we like to present the better us. He'll proclaim his own goodness. But who can find a faithful man? God's looking for, not for someone who toots their own horn, but someone who is faithful. Daily life gives us a lot of opportunities to be faithful. A lot of things in our jobs that we'd rather not do but we can be faithful to those tasks, not unto our boss, not to try to earn a promotion or get a greater paycheck, but unto the Lord. God, you have put me in this job, so I'm going to be faithful to you. Family life gives us a lot of opportunities to be faithful, doesn't it? Faithful to our spouses and to, to our kids. Maybe you're an odd fellow where you wake up and you just long to do the dishes in the morning. That's not me. I don't wake up just looking forward to unloading the dishwasher and loading in the dishes. 
That's an opportunity to be faithful. I'm going to do this unto the Lord. It's those small tasks, those little things that God looks for character that he can entrust greater things to. So if we can see the meaning behind those tasks, maybe you're in school and you're in a university, you're in a high school and you're going, oh no, you know, Christmas break is coming to an end. That schoolwork gives you an opportunity to be faithful unto the Lord. We see this great glamorous apostle Paul that God has used, but he was a man of faithfulness. We know from the scripture, he was a tent maker. I bet people were lining up to buy Paul's tents because they were stinking good tents. They held up. You weren't going to get ripped off if you bought a tent from the apostle Paul. And you think about laboring in that hot climate and sewing these tents together. People weren't in line to be tent makers, but this is the way that Paul supported himself in the ministry, and he was faithful to do that. I think the Apostle Paul was probably the kind of person that said, I'm going to meet you at 9 o'clock. He'd be there at 9 o'clock, not 9.10, not 9.15. He would be there. When Paul said, I'm praying for you, you could count on the fact that he indeed was praying, that he wasn't simply blowing smoke. It wasn't just an expression to say, but he meant it, and he remembered you, and he remembered your need and was lifting it to the throne room of God. He was counted faithful by the Lord. So God gives the power. He gives the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's up to us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It's up to us to be faithful, to take those steps of diligence in our lives. Money also gives us a great opportunity to be faithful. In Luke 16, verse 10 and 11, Jesus says this. He says, he who is faithful in what is least is also faithful and much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the true riches? So if you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? God sees money as an opportunity to display faithfulness. Money actually does say a lot about our character, about our priorities, about our passions, about our worship. So be faithful with the money that God has given to you. Be faithful to tithe unto the Lord and give first fruits unto the Lord. Be a cheerful giver. Giving is good for us. It frees our hearts from from greed. Be a person that is faithful to live within your means. God, this is how much you've provided, so I'm going to be faithful to live inside of that. God's provision is also God's guidance in our lives. And instead of hating finances or wiggling out of finances, to sink yourself in it and go, this is an area of faithfulness because God says, if I can show myself faithful in finances, then he'll trust to me the true riches. We desire the true riches. We desire for God to trust us with the things of the kingdom. If you were able to look at a more detailed look of Paul's life, I think you'd see faithfulness in finances. And Paul doesn't publish that. That's something that's private between him and the Lord, but he was a man of faithfulness. May we be encouraged in faithfulness that God counted Paul faithful and then putting me into the ministry. And this is the third thing that Paul's thankful for. This morning in our Bible studies, he's placed. So he's enabled, he's trusted, but he's placed. Paul had a God story in his life of how God put him into the ministry. First, we have to define ministry because I think we've made it to be something really glamorous. Well, if you're working at a church, you're, you're in ministry, but that's not the case. Ministry is serving people. That's what the word ministry means. It means to be a servant, to do those 
tasks that nobody else wants to do. And Paul says, God has placed me into this position of serving others. And hopefully you have a God story in your life that you can be thankful for. You can look at your marriage if you're married and you can say, I know that God has placed me inside of this marriage. It was the Lord's doing. Maybe I didn't even know the Lord. I wasn't walking with the Lord, but I look back now and see that this is God's hand, that he's blessed me. The Lord's blessed you with kids that you can look and you can say, wow, this is God's doing. These kids are engineered by the Lord. They're God's blessing in my life. My three-year-old told me yesterday, she said, dad, in heaven, there's going to be no bedtime. <laughs> that, that was like, I'm right on, you know, she, she's right. And in her world, that's going to be such a blessing to not have to be put, put to bed. And we realize, God, you've placed these children into our lives of knowing that you're single. If you're in a place of, of being single, that that's God's working in your life, that he's placed you in, in that ministry. And there's unique opportunities that come with being single. If the Lord has blessed you to be able to serve in the children's ministry, to know oh, I've been placed there. If you're in the women's ministry, the men's ministry, if you've got an opportunity at your job to be a witness of Jesus Christ, you are placed there. We may think, oh, it's coincidence that we live on the street that we live in and the apartment complex that we live in, but God has placed us there. And that's such an important thing to be able to rejoice in the hand of our Father that he has placed us. First, allowing him to place us. Psalms 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house... He who labors in vain, who builds it. Because we're all at different places of our lives. Some of you are in transition this morning and allow God to build your life. It's a warning saying, if God doesn't build your life, you're laboring in vain. But it's also a great invitation. God's saying, I want to build your life. I want to build your house for my glory. Allow God to do it. Some of you are experiencing what it's like to have already been planted by God, like the Apostle Paul. And there's a battle inside of us where sometimes we want to run from where God has placed us. I read a great book by H.B. London that talked about blossoming and blooming where you're planted. Instead of trying to get out of where you're planted, sink your roots there in that place and bloom where the Lord has planted you. Because a lot of times we struggle with discontentment even in the ministry that God has given to us. Maybe you know the Lord has placed you with the fifth graders in our church and you go, but I would really like to be on the worship team. Yeah, I know d deep down, they're the ones that really have it good inside of Rocky Mountain Calvary. That would be the real fun ministry. A lot of times, you know, if pastors are gifted in teaching and explaining the word of God, they want to be evangelists, you know, and they want to have a ministry to see thousands of lost people come, come to know the Lord. And God gives different gifts to different people, and we need to be content with where the Lord has placed us. And Paul's able to rejoice in the fact that he's been placed by the Lord. The Lord has put him into ministry. If we let go of our lives, I've been listening to a worship song, and the song lyrics are this, is today's surrender is tomorrow's freedom. And I like that. Today's surrender is tomorrow's freedom. And if we let go and we surrender to God and his will and say, Lord, I'm just going to let you place me, whether that's a new endeavor or being content with where he has us. The last thing and the greatest thing this morning that Paul rejoices in is his salvation, that he's saved. In verse 13, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I attained mercy because I did it ignorantly 
in unbelief. Paul, who was Saul, he was the persecutor of the church. And I'd like to read from his own account of his life. This is Acts 26, verse 9. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Ever been there in your life before Christ where you thought you needed to do things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ? This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He arrested Christians, casting his vote for them to be put to death. Those are hard images to get out of your mind. Forcing people to blaspheme, watching people be martyred at your vote, at your desire, at your hard work of arresting them. Acts 9 describes Paul as a man who is on the prowl, like a mountain lion seeking after his prey. That's the kind of intensity that he went after the body of Christ. In verse 11, it says, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a devout Jew, and he considered anyone that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that they were committing blasphemy. And this is why he sat af- sought after them in persecution. However, God called Paul by name knocked Paul off of his high horse, led him to Christ. And the key to verse 13, maybe underline it, we're back in Timothy, is this. says, formally, formally, I was formally this. I was formally that. He has a new identity in Christ. He's no longer a blasphemer. He's no longer a persecutor. What I find interesting about Paul is he sums up his past in three words, doesn't he? And sometimes we can get too focused in on the life that God has delivered us out of. We don't want to forget it. We want to remember what the Lord has saved us from, but our testimony isn't a brag fest for who has sinned the most. You following me? Does that that make sense? And sometimes people go on for about two hours of their life before Christ, and then they only talk about Jesus for two minutes. And Paul, he touches on it, but he doesn't overly focus it. He says, I was formerly this. Good news, church. There's a formerly in our lives. It's in the rearview mirror, and you're new in Christ Jesus. You've been created new in Christ Jesus. It also says in verse 13 that he obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. God dealt with Paul according to the knowledge that he had. Verse 14 is one to focus on. It says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Exceedingly abundant is overflowing. It's this endless resource of God's grace. It's like this, Niagara Falls, if you've been there, billions and billions of gallons of water flowing over the the falls for thousands of years, right? One artist did a drawing, a painting, of Niagara Falls, asking a friend, what should we entitle this painting? And the friend said, more to follow. And I like that. That's God's grace. There's more to follow. There's more to come. The grace of God is God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, undeserved, unmerited favor. Here, Paul is this persecutor, this murderer of Christians, but yet God was gracious to him and provided salvation in his life. And Paul says, God's grace is exceedingly abundant. 
grace upon grace. Romans 5, again, it's the words of Paul. He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Isn't that good news? There's no sin, there's no sinner that's beyond the grace and the forgiveness, salvation, restoration of God. Notice what happens when we understand this abundant grace in our lives with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Some get really nervous about the grace of God and the teaching of the grace of God. And I often wonder why. Why would you be nervous about what God says about himself? and the grace and the forgiveness that that he provides. Because what I found in my heart and in my life is when I understood the unconditional love of God, that he loved me while I was at my worst, when I didn't want to have anything to do with God, it produced faith and love. It produced in me a trust for Jesus Christ, that if he would love me while I was at my worst, I could trust him. And it also produced a love in my heart and my life because it wasn't trying to earn or deserve his favor. It wasn't trying to do enough devotions or read the Bible enough times in order to have his favor. It was what? I've already received his favor. He's already given me his love. It's been declared to me. The grace of God teaches us. The grace of God leads us to a place of faith and love in Christ Jesus. Don't be nervous about embracing and sharing the grace of Christ. We go on into verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. When the Bible says that, we need to pay attention. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. We just celebrated Christ's coming at Christmas, didn't we? That Christ came into the world. Why did Christ come in the world? Why was he born in in Bethlehem? The incarnation, God in human flesh, for one purpose, to save sinners. Jesus didn't come to save the self-righteous. They don't need Jesus. They reject Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees largely rejected Jesus Christ because they thought they were good enough on their own accord, didn't they? Jesus was accused of being the friend of sinners, which was true. He spent time with people that were messed up. Why? He told us in his words, because the physician is for those that are sick. I like my doctor. I got a great doctor. I've been going to the same doctor for the 14 years that I've lived in Colorado Springs, but I never go to see him just to hang out. I never just pay him good money to see how his day's going, right? The only time me and my family go to the doctor is because something's wrong. That's the purpose of the physician. And Jesus is the great physician, and he came for sinners. And this is a worthy saying that's We're to accept that we're to put our faith in and understand it in our own lives. But this is also how we're to see the world. When we see someone jacked up in sin, entangled in sin, and it's frustrating to us, we need to understand that they could be the next Apostle Paul. Do you know how nerve-wracking it would be for the early church when Paul would get up to preach? Like, who's letting this guy come and preach? Not too long ago, he was arresting and murdering Christians. I'm going to opt out of this service. Maybe he's got a trick up his sleeve. He's got some, not handkerchiefs, but whatever those things are that, what are those things called? What is it? Handcuffs. Handcuffs, yes. Not handkerchiefs, but handcuffs. He's got handcuffs in his back pocket, and he's going to arrest me, so I'm going to be done. If someone's radically 
committing sin and living a life of sin, we need to understand once they know the grace and the forgiveness of God, they're going to be a radical follower of Jesus Christ. He came in the world to save sinners. And Paul then says, I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners, present tense. And that's a pretty mind-blowing statement. And what Paul isn't saying is that he's out living a life of rebellion to God, but he understands God's grace in a greater way the longer he walks with God. If you'll write down a few verses, I think this section of scripture will be unlocked to us. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 and Ephesians 3 verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15 9, Ephesians 3 verse 8. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of the first letters that Paul wrote, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. The way he viewed himself was the other apostles are greater than me. Then in Ephesians 3, he said, I'm the least of the saints. And saints is a term that's given to all those who are in Christ. Ephesians was written later in his ministry. So the longer that he walked with Christ, the more he understood his need for grace in his life. This is one of Paul's last letters that he wrote. 2 Timothy is the last letter of the Apostle Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, he's saying, I am, present tense, the chief of sinners. This isn't a false humility that Paul is giving. This is how he really saw himself. Maybe you can relate. The longer that we walk with God, the more we see his holiness and how flawed we are and how sinful we are. It's like this. We come into the kingdom of God and we realize we needed this much grace. We walk with God and we realize, oh, I need this much grace. We walk with God even longer and we go, oh, I need this much grace. I am the chief of sinner. I also find this to be encouraging. The longer that the, we walk with the Lord, the more that we realize how messed up we are. Maybe you can relate to that. You go, I just, this year, I'm not really sure if I've grown. And I, and I realize that there's some things that are really broken inside of me. It could be that you really are drawing near to the Lord. And people around you see it, and they see you pressing into Christ, and there's more humility that's being birthed and produced in your heart and in your life. Paul's not in condemnation here, and please understand this. He's not walking around with a big label that says, I'm chief of sinner. What he's walking around with is he's saying, I'm the most forgiven. He's walking around with the label and the stamp of God's grace that is put upon him. The chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. Verse 16, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy. So this is why Paul received mercy. That in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. <laughs> so God gave grace and mercy to Paul so people would go, oh, God suffers long. God's patient. God continued to love Paul while he persecuted the church, while he killed and murdered Christians. God's gracious and he's long-suffering, but also as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Unbelievers could look at Paul's life and go, wow, if God can save Paul, he can save me. If God can save and use Paul, God can save and use my life as well. And that's hopefully the encouragement that's happening in and through our lives as well. It's people that know you and people that know me that they can understand, wow, if God can save Eric, he can save me. A pattern of God's grace. Please hear this. The grace that saved and used Paul is the same grace that saves and uses us. No different. 
Paul's a sinner like we're sinners and God's gracious was abundant in his life. And the same is true for us as a pattern of how God wants to work in and through our lives. And verse 17 brings us to a doxology. And what a doxology is, is a conclusion of praising God. As Paul reflects and celebrates God's grace in his life, how God has enabled him, trusted him, placed him, saved him, he begins to worship. He begins to sing. Now to the king eternal. The first thing that he acknowledges is that Jesus is king, that he reigns sovereign. What's your hope for the new year? You know what my hope for the new year is? Is Jesus Christ reigns and he's on the move and he wants to transform and change people's lives like crazy. Amen? And no matter the circumstances that we face in the different arenas of our life to go, you're the king and you are the king eternal. Think about that for just a moment. He has no beginning point. He has no ending point. He always has been. He will be. He's the alpha, the omega, the first and the last. He is the eternal king. That's a comfort. That's an encouragement for us. But he's also immortal, meaning that he's not subject to decay. He's imperishable. As we've just celebrated Christmas and all of these gifts have been given, do you know what the future of those gifts are? They're very perishable, isn't it? When I go down to the basement and go through the kids' toys, I'm reminded of that. Christmas gifts three years ago are today's trash, right? That's the reality of, of what takes place. Christ is imperishable. Christ is immortal. He's not subject to decay. Not only is he eternal, but he's not going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's also invisible. And this is something that Paul embraces. He says, the king who is invisible. And this is absolutely true. We can't see God. But at some point, we will. The book of Job, in the smack dab in the middle, Job 19, before Job had received the answers from God at the end of the book, he says, this is my hope. This is what I hold on to. This is what I know that I'm going to see God. That in my flesh, I'm going to behold God. And we're able to hold on to that as well. As we look forward to going home to being with Christ, we're going to see him. We're going to behold him. But right now, we embrace him through faith. So you've got your Bible. Turn briefly with me over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It's just a few pages to your right. Hebrews 11 Verse 1, it describes this faith that we live in. After Timothy is Titus, then Philemon, then we get to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our faith, we can't see God, but that doesn't mean there's no evidence for God. Being a child of God doesn't mean that you check your brains in at the door. Having faith doesn't mean that you don't look for evidence. Our faith is a faith with evidence. We look around every day at creation and we see the evidence of God. We don't see God, but we see the evidence of God. It's like this. You may be doubting that we had Christmas Eve services here. You say... Well, I hear of these Christmas Eve services, but I wasn't here, so I don't know if they're true. Maybe you missed them on Tuesday. If you were able to come here on Christmas Day 
and go through the restrooms, you would see evidence of the fact that we had Christmas Eve service. The toilet paper is gone. Come into the sanctuary and you could see the wax on the blue chairs from the candlelight and you could see the evidence of the fact that indeed there were Christmas Eve services. We don't see God, but we see the evidence of God in creation. You look at your fingerprint. You see the intricate design of God. You look at human DNA and you see the design of God. We go on in verse 17, to God who alone is wise. He alone is God. And he is the only one who has wisdom. There is no other. It's a great day in our lives, believers, when we understand that God is the one who's wise. I hope this, I trust this, that you're following Jesus, that you're not following a man, that you're not following a woman, that you're not following anybody other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because every person is flawed. Every person will let you down. Every person will not accurately reflect Jesus Christ. And so he's the only one that's wise. He's the counselor that you're looking for. He's the comforter that you need. He's the friend that, that you desire. And Paul says, I'm thankful that God alone is wise. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I was reflecting upon as Christmas came and went that I'm so glad that Christ remains. Because there's a lot of sentiment and emotion and ups and downs that happen with Christmas. And it comes and it goes and you pack up all the Christmas decorations and you put away the lights, but Jesus remains. And then I found my heart going out to people that only celebrate Christ a couple weeks out of the year or one day out of the year. That there's so much more that can be had with the relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know how much Jesus is honored if we just celebrate him one day a year or even one day a week. If we just come one day a week and we go, God, here's my hour and 15 minutes for the week. It's honoring God every single day. It's allowing him to be Lord in our lives every single day. And Paul's been touched by grace. And as he's touched by grace, he says, honor be to God, glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. It's a celebration of grace. In our lives this morning, I think there's some things that we can apply. First is, are we enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit? To really explore that and look at it and say, okay, I'm gonna get up, service is gonna end, and I'm the same sinner that I was when I came in. And I'm gonna be tempted and I'm gonna struggle. And what's gonna change in my life? Submitted and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the junk's gotta go, doesn't it? For the Spirit to come in, to the Spirit to lead us in our lives, allowing the cleansing work of God, following the Lord, being enabled by the Spirit to say, God, make me a faithful man. Make me a faithful woman. It means something when you're faithful in your marriage. It means something when you're faithful to your kids. Singles, it means something when you're faithful in your singleness. It, it means something when we're faithful in our jobs. Of all people, Christians, the body of Christ should be most faithful in their work, no matter what it is. Lord, I want to be faithful because I want to be trusted with the true riches. Have you been placed? Well, then be content there and blossom there. It's always fascinating to me as a pastor is that we deal with a lot of married people that don't want to be married. And we deal with a lot of single people that want to be married. It's like, how about everybody be content? You know, if you're single, you've been placed there by God for right now. Be content there. If you're married, hey, guess what? That's where exactly where the Lord wants you to be. Be content there. Be placed by God and blossom there. And then finally, 
you're saved. You're saved. You're, you're the child of God. And take some time to reflect upon God's grace and your life and celebrate it. This section of scripture right here, church, led to the English Reformation in the 1500s. A guy by the name of Thomas Bilney, B-I-L-N-E-Y. He was familiar with religion and trying to please God by his works. Then he read this section of scripture, and in his own words, he said there was marvelous comfort and quietness that came over his soul, that his bruised bones leapt for joy. See, he never understood grace. He never really believed that God loved him and saved him by grace. And he thought through reading his Bible more, memorizing it more, fasting more, giving more, making more sacrifices, that somehow God would be pleased with him. I hope that you're not here this morning trying to earn or deserve God's favor that way. It's a miserable place to be. And when we experience the grace of God, our bruised bones that have been bruised by legalism begin to take joy. And he said he found the word of God to be sweet for the first time in his life. It wasn't rules and regulations. It was pursuing a love relationship with God. He went on to stand firm in God's word and he was burned at the stake. He would not recant his faith in Jesus Christ. A man that he led to the Lord, Hugh Latmer, became the great preacher of the English Reformation. He went before the king and he offended the king with his preaching. And the king said, you can come back next Sunday and apologize for the things that you said. Do you know what Hugh Latmere did? He went back the next Sunday and he taught the exact same message with more enthusiasm. It ultimately led to him being burned at the stake as well. But where did that kind of sacrifice get birthed from? not trying to earn or deserve God's favor, but understanding God's grace. And if there's anything this morning that we accept and that we hold on to, this is a faithful saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the chief, that we're loved by God. You don't do anything more to earn or deserve God's love. When we read our Bibles, God's not going, oh, I love you a little bit more today. Oh, you came to church on a snowy, cold, holiday type of weekend. You get the extra brownies for God this morning. Everybody that skipped church this morning, God loves them just the same, right? And legalism, it leads to bondage. It leads to pride, but grace leads to freedom and knowing I've been loved by God. What did we do to earn or deserve God's salvation? What did we do to earn or deserve the fact that God drew us by his kindness? We don't, but we believe it, we accept it, and we rejoice in it. So would you stand with me and let's pray together.